The scripture reading for this morning is from 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 5. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? This is the word of the Lord. Maria had to go back to unmute me. She's double duties today. Uh, everyone have a good Christmas? I see a lot of fresh shirts. Uh, Glenn has a new jacket on. Skid. Um, Happy New Year. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, this is actually my first, uh, first sermon is like officially on staff here, which is kind of cool. Um, it doesn't really feel new because I've uh, been one of your elders and kind of pastors for uh, years now, really. Uh, but now I just don't have to go to my other job and do this on top of that. So uh, praise be to God for, um, for f- fulfilling his promises, for uh, building his church, for providing for us kind of every step along the way. So um, it's pretty great. Uh, we, we've just kind of finished up our uh, series in Advent. Um, today really we'll kind of wrap it up today. Uh, so I've decided to still use our festive uh, background. We still have our tree up. Uh, those things are going away soon though, so uh, don't worry. Christmas is, well, Christmas is nearly over, sadly. Um, what we do every year as the church, as Christians during Advent is we, we look back and we remember Christ coming into the world. Um, that's what the word Advent means. Uh, the Latin word Adventus means uh, coming. It's the arrival of a notable person or a thing. Um, Advent is we remember that waiting period coming into uh, Christmas. And it's also the celebration of that moment in time when word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's John 1. God coming down uh, into our midst. Creator uh, breaking into his creation. Uh, entering into time and space, entering from pure light into our darkness, um, entering into our weakness. And why does he do all of those things? Uh, to pursue us. Uh, you see, we often so much put, we put a lot of emphasis on our pursuit of God, um, our uh, kind of following our heart, our exploring spirituality, uh, our finding faith. But what if, let me ask you this question, what if we actually have that backwards? Because what we, 
what we actually see in the Advent story in the Bible is, is that God is actually the one who is in pursuit. Um, it's not the other way around. Um, and there's a 19th century English poet called Francis Thompson. He wrote a poem about God called The Hound of Heaven, which is kind of a funny way to describe God. Um, it's a poem about him uh, running from God and God, his pursuit of him. Um, Joshua Ryan Butler wrote a book called uh, The Pursuing God. recommend everyone to read it. And he, he talks about this and he says that um, God's love is like this, this kind of reckless. Have you ever seen a dog run after something that it wants, a rabbit or chasing a mouse through your house? Um, it's, that rhymed. Um, his reckless love is on the prowl. Um, he's willing to crash through our distance and to crush down uh, our idols to get to our heart. As his footsteps draw closer, the sound of his voice breaks through the silence and the light of his encroaching presence begins to pierce the darkness. I love that. So uh, we look back and we, we remember when God came into this world his pursuit of us. Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's an incredible story. I can't wait to get to it again next year. Um, but we as the church, we are in a, a peculiar point in history um, where we, uh, we look back and we remember him coming, but we use that as a lens to also look forward into the future to, to his coming again. We, we celebrate um, him coming into the world once, but we also celebrate when he's going to come again um, we live in this middle period where Jesus has come, and he, is, he has come uh, and he's lived on our behalf uh, this perfect life that we can only dream and hope of living, and he's died also on our behalf um, as a sacrifice uh, for our sins, and he's risen from the grave, and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and one day he's going to come again um, to, to set things right once and for all. To, to gather his children and to consummate the salvation of his people. And his kingdom will reign gloriously forever and ever. And at, at the first advent, Jesus came as a baby. There's nothing more weak than a newborn baby. In his second advent, he comes in power. In his first advent, the first coming, he came as a suffering servant, as a sacrificial lamb like we just sang. In his second coming, he comes as a mighty warrior, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes as judge and he comes as king. At first, he came into shadows. He came into our darkness. Finally, when he comes, light will shine on all things. There will be no more shadows and darkness. As we sung, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Revelations chapter 11 uh, says that the kingdom of this world, our kind of worldly kingdom, has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Hebrews 9.26 tells us he first came to suffer, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and to inaugurate the kingdom rule of God. Then we read in verse 28 that he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin because he's already done that, but to, uh, to save those who are eagerly waiting on him and to consummate the kingdom in all its fullness. And um, church, Jesus is coming again. It's amazing. There will be a second advent. So we look, we, we look both back in, in celebration and forward in great anticipation uh, of his coming again. Um, and so today our passage uh, in 2 Samuel 23 
um, has the same aspect of both, both looking back and looking forward. It's a poem, uh, a song written by uh, the Bible's most famous songwriter, David. Uh, it's usually given this title of uh, the last words of, of King David. Um, the Bible scholars in the room might note that there's actually two passages that uh, kind of claim to be his last words. Uh, there's 1 Kings 2, uh, which records, it's David's last words to his son, Solomon. So it's, it's a very intimate passage of a, a dying father, his last words to his son, uh, a king to, his, to the heir to the throne. Um, but this passage seems to be his final song, his, his final words to the people. Um, it's a song uh, reflecting back both on David's own life and also reflecting back on the promises that God made to David in chapter 7. Uh, so chapter 7 of 2 Samuel is this kind of specific covenant that God made with David. Uh, we call it the Davidic covenant where God, uh, he promised that David's house and his kingdom shall be made sure forever. Uh, that his throne shall be established forever. And it's this kind of foreshadowing to this final coming of the Messiah who will reign forever and ever and ever. Um, so it's looking back on those things, on his life and those promises. And it's also looking, uh, it's a song that's focused on the future, on what those promises that were made, how they will actually be. So he's an old man. He's, he's, um, he's on his deathbed, but he sees this bright future of grace a promise of a righteous ruler over man. He seems excited about it. He seems uh, praising God in his last moments. So this morning we're going to ask and answer uh, these three questions. Uh, What was David's confession? What was David's comfort? And what was David's hope for the future? What was David's confession? What was his comfort? And what was his hope for the future? So firstly, let's look at uh, David's humble confession. Uh, this is a song that contains the experiences of an old servant of God who, who looks back on his life and sees many ups and downs. Um, it's an old soldier remembering his campaigns. It's an old traveler uh, looking back on his, on his journeys. Uh, but he, he, he starts by looking forward. Uh, he looks forward with this prophetic eye to the future coming of the Messiah, of this promised Savior, uh, the, the seed of, of Abraham, the seed of him, David. Uh, he looks forward to uh, the advent of a glorious kingdom, uh, which there shall be no wickedness. There, uh, righteousness shall be the, the universal character uh, of all the subjects in this kingdom. He looks forward to the, this final gathering of a perfect family, which there shall be no defects, there will be no sin, there will be no uh, sorrow, no death and tears. He says, the light of that kingdom shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. So he begins uh, his song by looking forward to that. But then um, he, he looks back on his own life, and he turns to his, his own family, his own household, and he asks the question in verse 5. Um, he asks this question, for, for, does not my house sta- st- for does not my house stand so with God? Um, this is one of those passages in the Bible where, depending on, on the English translation that you are reading from, you can sometimes get uh, seemingly uh, varying translations, or this one seems to be saying something different from this one. Um, we really don't have time to, to explain all of that, nor am I an, an expert in kind of textual variance in, or, in original writings. Um, 
But here's a, here's a simple answer for you to this complex question of what do I do when I have varying uh, translations? The simple answer is this, that any difference in Bible translations that is significant enough for you to notice, it's almost certainly not due to textual variance from the original text that they're uh, translating from. So uh, uh, an example of a textual variant would be uh, in Matthew 1, uh, there's a verse that says, talks about Jesus, it says, when as his mother was betrothed to David, sometimes it's when, when uh, his mother was betrothed to David. So they're just missing this as in difference. It's a small, very small textual variant. This is not one of those, those cases. Um, what we have here is an ancient Hebrew language, which is very complex. Um, and not only is it a, a, a different language than us, but this is an ancient Hebrew song. It's a poem that David has written. It's, it's, it's Hebrew poetic literature. Um, the, the language he uses, the phrases he uses, the way he says stuff is very, very different from what we would, how we would talk. There's English poems that I could recite now, and most of us probably wouldn't even understand them. This is an ancient Hebrew poem that we're trying to translate into English. And we have scholars who, who, uh, who try, to, try their best to do this so that we can understand it. So what we have here is not different varying texts that we can't rely on. We have uh, groups of smart Bible scholars who are legitimately trying to uh, translate poetic Hebrew language into modern language so that we can grasp its meaning. And I say praise God for that, that God has gifted people to do that. Um, so what you have when you come to a passage like this is we have to stop as usual we have to step back. We have to look at the entire uh, surrounding context. We look at uh, how the song was written, uh, why the song was written, in what way was it written, uh, what period of David's life was it written, and then we make some observations of which reading makes the most sense. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a little Bible study together. So what I found is, is in my studies is these kind of three um, main translations, which differ somewhat, but what I found is that they are all faithful and true and um, makes sense in the context of David's story and they get us to the point that he's trying to make, okay? So let's do this. On the first one is the NIV. NIV translates this as, if my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. So in this one, David seems to be looking back and it's a positive way of making his point. Um, he's saying, if my house were not right with God, surely uh, God would not have made with me this everlasting covenant. So David seems to be saying that his house is right with God. Then the next one we have is the uh, King James Version or the New King James Version, which translates it as, although my house is not with God, not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. So this seems to be more of the, the negative way of making his point. Uh, David seems to be saying that his house isn't right with God. He seems to be uh, looking back and confessing that his house, that his family, has been a mess. And if you read his story, you'll see that it actually has been a complete mess. Uh, yet, he still states that God has made with him an everlasting covenant. So he looks forward to the future coming of the Messiah, but he also sorrowfully looks back on his own family and sees that it's not perfect. See how these two translations are seemingly kind of different, but they're saying the same thing about the covenant that has been given. And lastly, what we have is the ESV, the English Standard Version. This is the one we normally preach out of. And this one translates it more as a question. 
So this translates to as, For does not my house stand so with God? For he is made with me an everlasting covenant. So David's looking back, and he's asking this question, which really leans more towards the positive one. He's looking back, and he sees the destruction in his life, in his, in his household. He sees the pain. He sees all the sin. He sees all the tears and the sorrow and the suffering. And in that moment, that family record that he's looking at is not what he's going to place his hope in. Because straight away after asking the question, what does he look at? The covenant. So he, 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 he immediately goes straight to the, uh, he asks the question and immediately he looks at the covenant. For he is made with me an everlasting covenant. That word for, it's better translated as because. So he's asking the question, does my house stand with God? And the answer is yes. In spite of uh, the mess that it actually is, yes, it does stand with God. Why? Because he is made with me an everlasting covenant. Does my house stand with God? Well, even though it probably shouldn't, it still does because he has made with me an everlasting covenant. So you see, David is not boasting in his family history when he looks back. He's boasting in the Lord. It's not because I'm special, but because God has made a promise. He's looking back on his family and he knows it's not perfect. He knows it's not free from sin. It has many, many blots and blemishes. Okay, if... If ever there was a man in the Old Testament whose life was full of troubles, who who was a man of sorrows, it was David. He had trials of the envy of his his older brothers when he was younger. Trials of of, um, unjust and constant persecution from Saul. His own son, Absalom, tried to kill him and take his kingdom from him. His, His own subjects turned on him and drove him out of Jerusalem. So wave after wave, trials after trials were crashing down on David until the end of his life. And also don't think that he doesn't know what the wreckage of his own sin has brought into his family household. Okay, so he he lusts after Bathsheba. He calls her, he sleeps with her, he gets her pregnant. He then tries to cover it up by bringing her husband back from war. That doesn't work, so he conspires to kill him by sending him to the front line kind of to ensure that he's going to be dead. That's pretty messed up. (laughs) I'm assuming no one in here has done something that messed up. His home was full of sorrows. But isn't this the experience of God's people? Isn't this the experience of some of his dearest children, of his saints. So read your Bible. Abraham, uh, uh, Adam, <laughs> his family, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samuel. These were all men with many sorrows. And those sorrows chiefly arose out of their own home. Um, I love this quote by J.C. Rowell, and my, is it on there, Ian? No, I'm just going to read it. He says this about home trials. The plain truth is that these home trials are one of the many means by which God sanctifies and purifies his believing people. By them, he keeps us humble. By them, he draws us to himself. By them, he sends us to our Bibles. By them, he teaches us to pray. By them, he shows us of our need for Christ. By them, he weans us from the world. 
By them he prepares us for a city which hath foundations, in which there will be no disappointments, no tears, no sin. Listen to this. It is no special mark of God's favor when Christians have no trials. They are spiritual medicines which poor fallen human nature absolutely needs. So this is, church, this is why uh, James says that we, can, we should actually count uh, our trials as pure joy. Consider it pure joy whenever we face various uh, trials because they help make us more like Jesus. Consider your trials, uh, your suffering as joy. How bonkers is that? That's so upside down. Job says that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. So are you human? Congratulations. Welcome to the world. Welcome to troubles. Um, some of us, no doubt, will, will have a larger cup of sorrows to drink than others. But everyone in the room uh, will not live long without some kind uh, of affliction. The greater our affections, the deeper our afflictions. The more we love, the more we have to weep. Uh, Jenny and I recently had our third child. Um, so we have uh, one boy and two girls. And they are beautiful. And we love them so much. Um, and it, it's sometimes fun to, to just sit and wonder what their lives are going to be like. Uh, really, really scary. <laughs> um, if you have children, kind of terrifying to think that. Um, but also something kind of sweet about it. But here's the thing. There's really only one thing that is for certain that we can predict for their lives. That is that they will have many, many troubles. And our job as parents is to teach them these truths. Our job is to teach them that these trials aren't there to crush them. They're there to help them to lean on Jesus. They are a blessing, actually. They are to to count them as pure joy. And I think this was David's confession in this song, something he learned towards the end of his life, that his life was marked by many, many trials. So let's consider David's uh, source of comfort. Um, I've already mentioned what it is. Um, he, he looks back on his life, he sees it's been a mess, and he immediately remembers the covenant, God's promise to him. Um, he, says, um, he says, though my house isn't as I wish, um, still uh, it stands so with God, because he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Ordered in all things and secure. And then he adds this, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Um, that word help is better translated uh, as salvation. Um, so when David is talking about uh, the covenant that, he, that God has made with him, he calls it his entire salvation and his desire. This is his comfort. Um, this word co- covenant, it's, it's a deep and mysterious thing when we, when we um, apply it to anything that God does for us. Okay, because we only understand a covenant when it's made between two humans. Okay, um, it's, it's an agreement between two persons, which they bind themselves uh, to fulfill certain conditions and to do certain things. So we have all ki- types of covenant uh, in our society now. Um, so when you get a new job, you, you enter into a type of covenant with your employer that says that you will 
work diligently and, and fulfill your work duties and your, your employer, there's one of my cute babies, um, and then your employer is going to um, uh, treat you fairly and to pay your wages. It's not a, it's not a great analogy here. The, the, the better analogy, the better uh, view of covenant is one that we actually have from the Bible that we use, and that's the marriage covenant. Um, so this is where a man and a woman come together and they give vows or oaths. They enter into covenant which say that they belong to each other now, that they're no longer two separate people, that they are one, um, that they promise to love and to care, each, care for each other until the end of their lives. But the thing about human covenants is that we break them all the time. Isn't, isn't that true? And broken covenants bring in their trail more pain and sorrow. A lot of you uh, have, have, are familiar with this. So who in the room can fully understand a covenant made by, not a human, but by an eternal God? Someone who, who doesn't change, who cannot change. Someone whose word is faithful and true till the very end, forever and ever. One who, who does not break promises. Okay, this is so far above us, so, far to compre- so hard to comprehend, so far out of sight. You see, um, the covenant of God that David is referring to as his comfort, as his salvation and desire, is, is an everlasting agreement between the three persons of the Trinity, which has existed from all eternity for the benefit of all living members of Christ. I'm going to say that again. It's on the screen. The covenant of God that David is referring to as his comfort, as his salvation and desire, is an everlasting agreement between the three persons of the Trinity which has existed from all eternity for the benefit of all the living members of Christ. This is a mysterious and ineffable arrangement whereby all the things necessary for the salvation of your soul, all the things necessary for for your present peace, all the things necessary for your final glory uh, um, is fully and completely provided for and all of this is done by the joint work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So I love how through the Advent we've had, I think there's been Trinity stuff every week. We're going to just kind of continue that. Um, so what we mean by this is the redeeming work of God the Son by dying as a substitute on, our, on the cross. The drawing work of God the Father by choosing and drawing us to the Son. And the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in awakening and quickening and renewing our fallen nature. All of this is contained in the covenant. Okay, this is, this is everything that, that your soul as a believer needs. And this is why David calls it his entire salvation and his desire. This is his comfort. This is a really important bit, though. Listen up. Uh, the, of this covenant, Hebrews 12, 24, tells us that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is the mediator of the covenant. That it's actually through him that all the blessings and privileges of the covenant are conveyed to every one of his believing members. So it's through him. Okay? So when the Bible speaks of God making a covenant with man, it, it's, it's speaking of Uh, of man in Christ as a member and part of the Son, okay? So they are his his mystical body, and he is our head, okay? So if, if, if he is not your head, then the blessings aren't flowing through to you. It's through the head that, the, that all the blessings of the eternal covenant are conveyed to the body. Simply put, church, Jesus is the surety of the covenant, 
It's through him that believers receive its benefits. And this is the covenant that David had in view. When was the last time you you thought of, of God's covenant that he's made with you? I, if you're like me, I can go days and days with thinking about the blessings part of the covenant, okay? When am I going to get my, like, blessing side of it? Money, please. The parks and rec. Um, you see, church, though, um, he knows that we're like that, though, yet he still is graciously pleased to accommodate himself to our poor, weak faculties. At best, we can only grasp a little of what this covenant truly means. But we need to remember it. We, we need to spend time pondering it far, far more than we currently do. Um, there's, there's an unspeakable consolation in the thought that the salvation of your soul has been provided for from all eternity. J.C. Rawl says um, this. I think I have this one on the screen. Our pardon and peace of conscience through Christ's blood, our strength for duty, our comfort in trial, our power to fight Christ's battles were all arranged for from endless ages, long before we were born. Here upon earth we pray and we read and we fight and we struggle and groan and weep. We're often sore and hindered on our journey, but we ought to remember that an almighty eye has long been upon us. That we have been the subjects of divine provision, though we knew it not. Isn't that incredible? And remember, uh, in verse 5, David says that this everlasting covenant is ordered in all things and secure. See? To, so those who are called according to his purposes, even the smallest things in our daily lives, are working together for good. It's Romans eight twenty eight. Though, though you may not see it now, and though you may not understand it, Jesus says in Matthew 10 that the very hairs on your head are numbered. That not even a sparrow falls without your father knowing it. So there, there's, there's no luck, there's no chance in anything that happens to us. There's no surprises for him. The events in our lives are, are part of an everlasting plan in which God has foreseen and arranged everything for the good of your souls. Uh, let's try to cultivate a habit of remembering the everlasting covenant. It's a doctrine full of consolation if used properly. It's not meant to take away our responsibility. All throughout the scriptures, there, there are consequences when, when, when humans fall short. But we ought to remember that the, uh, Jesus, his words in John uh, thirteen seven, he says that what I'm doing now, you don't understand. But afterward, you will understand. So trust him. There, there is a meaning and a purpose in every bitter cup that we have to drink. We have to count these things as joy. The everlasting covenant was David's comfort. Finally, let's, uh, let's consider what was David's hope for the future. Uh, his hope for the future was the glorious advent of the Messiah at the end of the world and the setting up of his kingdom of righteousness at the final restitution of all things. Um, so David's views uh, of this kingdom were admittedly uh, dim and vague compared to what we get to read in the New Testament. 
Um, I don't think he was ignorant of the, of the coming Messiah to suffer. So read through the Psalms. You kind of see that in there. But he saw far behind it to the coming of the Messiah to reign. It's almost like he had this eager faith that leaped over the interval, uh, between the two intervals, and his mind was fixed on that promise. This attention was on the final reign of the Messiah. Look at the language and the imagery David uses to describe that advent. The future kingdom of the Messiah. Um, He says, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the light shining forth on a cloudless morning like the rain that makes the grass sprout from the earth. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Like the light of the morning when the sun rises, shining with no clouds. Like green grass carpeting earth, glistening under fresh rain. What a day. What beautiful imagery and poetry that is. But we can look around and we can see that that's not the case yet. Um, Christmas time is actually, it's a, it's a brilliant time to look back and remember the hope that we have in Jesus, but it's also a time when many people see and experience and feel the darkness in the world. We're reminded of how difficult it can be. So um, unlike uh, this description, there, there's darkness and clouds on every side. And Paul says in Romans 8.22 that the whole of creation groans in pain. So everywhere you look, you see confusion and you see uh, quarreling. There's war. You get discontent and grumbling. Excessive luxury among the rich and excessive extreme poor among the, uh, extreme poverty among the poor. There's dishonesty. There's lying and cheating decay of common morality. These, these are things that prove that Satan uh, is the prince of this world still right now and that, that the, the kingdom of God has not yet fully come. So our world is covered in clouds which hide the sun from our eyes. But David saw that there's a time coming, a glorious time when the state of things shall be completely changed. There's a kingdom coming in which holiness shall be the rule and, and the, uh, that sin should have no place at all. So we look around in our communities and it's, it's easy to see just in your neighborhood that the consequences of sin lie heavily on the earth still. So there's sorrow and troubles. There is sickness and pain. There's death. So when, when a son or daughter dies before their parents, there's something in us to say, that's not the way it should be. Bodily suffering, incurable disease, um, these aren't just the way things happen to be on earth. The Bible tells us that they're actually a result of sin entering into the world. So we have widows. That's not the way it's meant to be. We have orphans. That's not the way it's meant to be. We have people who are extremely lonely in our midst. It's not the way it's meant to be. Families are quarreling. Envy and jealousy break up households. It's undeniable that we are surrounded by clouds still. Things are not the way they should be. And I don't know about you, but it's, it's easy for me to lose sight and, and to think that nothing will end the state of these things. Especially this time of year, at the end of the year, when, when every year just seems to be worse than the last, 
it's part of me is not really looking forward to, the, to 2018, is creation to go on groaning forever. But thanks be to God, the second advent of Christ supplies an answer to that. Because Jesus has not yet finished his work on behalf of man. He will come again, church. He's coming to set up and consummate a glorious kingdom in which the consequences of sin have no place at all. It's a kingdom in which there will be no pain, no disease, no more suffering. Isaiah 33 says that its inhabitants will say no more, I am sick. (laughs) It's a kingdom where there will be no partings, no changes, no goodbyes. It's a kingdom where there will be no more deaths, no more funerals, no tears, no mourning. It's a kingdom where families won't quarrel. No more losses, no more disappointments, no unfaithful friends. Listen, there'll be no more feeling of having to prove your worth every day. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says that when the last trumpet sounds, the dead will raise imperishable. This means that they won't die again. They will endure forever, and there will be a grand gathering together of all of God's people. David says in Psalm 17, when we wake up after the Lord's likeness, we shall be satisfied. I long for satisfaction that doesn't end. Eternal satisfaction. Church, our hearts should long for the state of this kingdom. In fact, at the very end of the Bible, um, the penultimate verse of the book of Revelation, there's this call and response between Jesus and his people. Verse 20 um, says that he who testifies these things, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. This is the last thing that he says. Surely I'm coming soon. And what does John say? Come, Lord Jesus. This, let this be the prayer on our lips. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let this be our prayer when there's funerals, when there's deaths, when there's sickness. Come, Lord Jesus. Let this be our prayer when there is births and celebration and weddings. Still, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. We look forward to his kingdom. I'm just going to end by uh, three kind of points for those who have troubles. Number one, for those who have troubles, uh, take them all to Jesus. No one can comfort like him, church. He died on the cross uh, to purchase forgiveness for your sins. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father with a heart full of love and sympathy for you. He knows what sorrow is. To our weakness, he's no stranger. So he lived for 33 years in in a sinful world like me and you, Suffered himself, being tempted in every way. He saw suffering every day. You see, David was like, he's a foreshadow of the true man of sorrows, Jesus. Jesus suffered daily. And guess what? He hasn't forgotten it. Word became flesh, dwelled among us, suffered and died, was raised again, still flesh, still human, like me and you. 
Okay, so we don't have this uh, ghostly spirit Jesus in heaven. Uh, No, when he ascended to heaven, he took with him a human body, a human heart. So Roman, uh, Hebrews 4.14 says that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, if you don't know who I'm talking about. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He can feel. He's human like you. Not exactly like you. Exactly like you. Exactly like God. So that feeling when you get excited, that butterfly feeling, God, Jesus feels that. The, the, the pain and suffering, Jesus feels that. Just like you. 1 Peter 5, 7 says to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he knows David himself says in Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Secondly, uh, for those who have troubles, let us never forget the everlasting covenant to which David clung to in the end of his days. Um, It's still in full force. It is not canceled. It is the property of every believer in Jesus. I hope that's you. Don't give way to complaining. Let us firmly believe in the worst of times that every step in our lives is ordered by the Lord with perfect wisdom and perfect love and we will someday understand that fully. Let us not doubt that he is always doing all things well. He is good in giving and equally good in taking away. Trust him. And finally, by now, you should get it. Uh, we all have troubles. If you have troubles, uh, let us not forget that one of the best remedies and most soothing medicines is to try to do good for others and to be useful. Plainly put, church, let's get to work. We are called to lay ourselves out to make the sorrow less and the joy greater in our sin-burdened world. So don't give way to navel-gazing, pouring over your sorrows. What a miserable way to live. We are called to be like Jesus, to remember his example. Acts 10.38 says that he went about doing good. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give up his life as a ransom for many. Let's be like him. And we have this prayer that we say here, uh, kind of taken from the Lord's Prayer. We pray, in Belfast as it is in heaven. So Lord, uh, let us help usher in your kingdom here on earth. Use us. We're your body, your hands, and your feet. Let us be Jesus to the lost world. Those who have troubles, take them to the Lord. Never forget the everlasting covenant and be like Jesus and do good. Listen, um, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, you have been invited into a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of the heavenly Father. We've been made co-heirs with Christ. One day we will inherit all things in a kingdom where Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever. This was David's bright hope for the future.
Um, let 2018 uh, be the year where we look forward daily with anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.